Father, you are very, very holy and very great and very kind, very patient. And we are so thankful to know you. So thankful to be called and to have our names written in the Lamb's book of life. And then doubly thankful, O oh God, that you would call us to speak your word and serve your people and advance your cause. And we want to be stronger by the Holy Spirit in that and by the word in that. And so come and help us now. Make these hours together really fruitful. God, I pray. Bless these pastors who are here. Minister to their hearts, I pray. Strengthen their minds. Strengthen their bodies. Strengthen their marriages. Strengthen their parenting. Comfort their hearts. Renew their vision. Enlarge their hopes. Restore their zeal and their passion for your supremacy in all things. Lord, make these few minutes we have together right now over your word fruitful. Guard us from the evil one. Give us a riveted attention upon what you're saying in your word, through your word, by your spirit to our minds and our souls. Leave us not to our own devices or to the arm of the flesh or to our own memory or to our own preparation. Kindle within us a fresh flame of passion for your glory. So come now, I pray, and accomplish these and a thousand other good things in this room that you mean to do because you love us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, I am so thankful to be here uh, in view of the fact that I got on that plane and the first thing they said, I, I didn't believe a word they were saying. They said, well, the hydraulic pump is out. And I said, right, I know that's a code word for the mechanics are sitting on their duff. And it's a slowdown for Northwest because right across the hall, the hydraulic was also being replaced and down the hall. So I thought, oh, my, we don't have any leeway here. And they put us on another plane an hour later. And and uh, God was so good. So I'm just glad to be here. Really, really thankful. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this so long. Hello, Ray. Good to see you. I'll get a hug later. Um, I feel real moved. That was a very moving song. Very moving song. I sit there and I think about how blessed I am in so many ways. You know, we go through seasons of life. I've been sick as a dog. I did not preach yesterday. I was so sick. Uh, what is today? This is Tuesday. You don't ordinarily preach on Monday anyway. I didn't preach on Sunday. And uh, that's the second time in 20 years I've missed preaching on Sunday. And uh, so I don't get sick a lot, but I was really sick. And so pray for me. I'm glad this water is here, and I'll sip it if I have to. But that's another reason for gratitude. So there, there are these low times, but it's so good that pastors get sick. It is really important 
that pastors get sick. Because I tell you, the things I have to do when I'm sick, I can barely see you around the corner there. You can move over if you want. Um, what things you have to do spiritually when you're sick is to uh, is to try to empathize with the people who live with this almost constantly. Some do. And here I'm with a little a little flu, a little achiness, a little soreness in the chest, thumping in my head, a little coughing, and some people just live with this. All the time. And it was very hard for me to remember my memorized verses and hard for me to pray. And so that's very important that we pastors walk through seasons like that so we know how to minister to people in those situations. But mingled with those are good times. My dad wanted to be here. He's 81. He lives in Greenville, South Carolina, up the road. And or whichever way it is, and um, he can't be here because he he can't drive that far. But I think about him being down here in his neck of the woods, and what a veteran preacher he is. My dad was an evangelist and preached for 50 years on the road, and uh, still preaches to a Sunday school class at 81. And his wife has been in and out of the hospital. My stepmother. And uh, and then my son Benjamin got uh, engaged on Valentine's Day, which makes me real happy to a real fine Christian Brazilian woman, which is a thrilling thing to me. So my heart is just brimming with so many different things. Had a great time with our elders last night. I don't know if you enjoy meeting with your elders. I've been blessed at my church to have a a fellowship of elders for 20 years who've never been a depletion to me. They've always been an enrichment to me. And that's a gift because I know the warfare that many churches have in their councils of elders. And and so I, I'm a rich man as I come to you and I feel it deeply. I want to take you to 2 Timothy. If you have a Bible and would like to open it, preaching with confidence that it belongs that preaching belongs in worship. Um, basically, the question I want to ask is, why is so much of the time in corporate worship devoted to preaching? Is that a biblical, defensible way to do corporate worship, to spend half the time or so in preaching? Or is that just a, a tradition that is there that... Uh, doesn't have any biblical foundation or any theological basis. I want to defend it and uh, use this text as part of my foundation. So we'll read from 2 Timothy 3.16 down to chapter 4, verse 5. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, with great patience and instruction. For the time will come 
when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So why should we spend half of our corporate worship time, give or take, in preaching? What's the reason for that? And there are two reasons right off the bat that I'll mention, one of which comes from outside this text and then one comes from inside, and then we'll unfold more from inside the text. One is that God has revealed himself, and worship has the self-revelation of God right at the center of it. If you don't see him, you can't savor him. So you have to see God if you're going to worship. And he stands forth as the Word, as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. He is Word first. Well, that's what's not in the text, but I'll mention it just so you can ponder it and have it underneath. What is in the text is that he stands forth by the Word. All Scripture is inspired by God. That means that God has ordained that men moved by the Holy Spirit, as it says in Second Peter, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. God moved men so that they spoke and then they wrote all scripture, all writings are inspired by God. And when they're inspired by God, it's him putting himself, his will, his character in and through those writings. So that if you learn how to read or listen, you can connect with him. So the word becomes the instrument or the mediation through which you see, sense, apprehend spiritually God. And if that doesn't happen, worship can't happen. You have to connect with God in order to worship. You have to see Him, apprehend Him, taste Him. There has to be some sense of His reality, His presence, His contours, His character, His ways. And this text says He has inspired writings. And I presume He's inspired them with His own Self, his own ideas, his own ways, things about himself that he wants to be known. Why else would he do it? And so those words become the, the instrument of our spiritual communion with him. I think we can say more than this. More than that, he reveals himself by his word. We can say that worship is a response not only to what he shows us of himself in his inspired word, but worship is also a response to his work in the world, in the present, in history, in our lives. And the word relates to that work in some pretty significant and clear ways in Scripture. 
the word was the beginning of that work or was the instrument of the work in the beginning God created the world by the word according to Hebrews 11:3 the worlds were created by the word of God when Jesus did his work over and over again it says he spoke and seas were calmed he spoke and fevers were cooled he spoke and demons were cast out he spoke and sins were forgiven he spoke and blind received their sight he spoke and the dead were raised up the word of Jesus the word of God performs works and when you see those works you see evidences of God and character of God and they become an occasion for worship so the word is linked up not only directly with the self-revelation of God in what he says about himself but the word performs works which become the occasion of worship as well and that's that's true today right here in our text look at what it says 2 Timothy 3:16 all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching for reproof for correction for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate I just stop right there I was reviewing this on the plane coming down and and and, and one of the things pastors have to do is awaken people to the obvious they have to rivet people on the obvious if you're if you're always only trying to think of quirky new things to say you might entertain but if you don't find fresh mind awakening ways to say the obvious things then you'll miss part of your high calling and i was reading that verse and it, and it just struck me why is it that he says all scripture is inspired by god and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction so that the man of god may be adequate and equipped what's what's man of god what's an assumption here man of god inspired word of god this happens so that this will be adequate this man becomes adequate because this got inspired well there's an assumption there what is it that he reads it and meditates on it day and night and becomes like a tree planted by streams of water and just that simple thought there's an assumption here between a man of god and a word of god he reads it he spends time with it that's not to be taken for granted in the ministry red ray's letter that he sent out to, to all of you about how busyness is threatening to just call us away from prayer and the word over and over again to other things that our people want us to do and that if we yield to their immediate desires we will fail on their big desires in the long run and one of those is to become a man of god by lingering over the word of god but now that's just an aside the main point i want to draw out here is the word good work every good work god inspired the bible 
so that when men of God linger over the word of God, they would be equipped and empowered to do the work of God. The work, every good work flows from the word. And those two are occasions for worship. Where would I get that? Where would you go? What text would you go to to undergird that statement? That our works today, our good works, are occasions for worship. I'd go to Matthew 5.16. Where you perform good works and men see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That's worship. So your works become an occasion, preaching is one of them, for people to worship. And where does it come from? The Word. So I'm giving reasons for why the Word must be central in corporate Worship. And one of those reasons now is that it not only was the power by which the world was created, it not only was the instrument by which Jesus did his mighty works, it also is the means by which we do our works, one of those being preaching or praying or loving our people or blessing them in all kinds of ways and those people ministering to each other. And those good works become the occasion of giving God honor and and glory which is what worship is. So the point here is that worship is about knowing and admiring and savoring God through his works, and those works are depicted in the word and done by the word. They are portrayed in the word and performed by the word. And they are expressed in the word and effected by the word. I think there's one other argument I would give for why uh, the word should be central. And then I'll pose the question, why this particular form of the word called preaching? If there's no life in the church, if there's no life, spiritual vitality, Spiritual life. If there isn't life in the church, there won't be worship in the church. Where does life come from? First Peter 1.23 You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring or abiding word of God. The Word of God is the instrument of the new birth. You've been born again. 1 Peter 1.23 You are born unto life. You are brought from death to life by the Word of God. Yesterday morning, in my devotions, I was almost to the end of the book of Acts, reading through Acts, and I decided I would memorize again, try to, Acts 26:18 because these there's certain certain texts where Jesus commissions his apostles or Paul in particular in this case that are so relevant to me I want so much to be this that I 
I memorize them, take them in, try to live them out. And, and it says in Acts 26, 18, I send you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that their sins might be forgiven and that they might have an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, that's an absolutely staggering statement. I send you to open their eyes. You. You, Paul, you go open their eyes. That's just stunning. So here he says to me, I send you into the pulpit on Sunday morning or into a hospital room or into a counseling situation and you go there and you open their eyes. How? With what? And the answer is, with the Word of God. With the Word of God. You have been born again. You have been raised from the dead. You've been brought from death to life. You've been brought out of darkness into light. You know that because Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, that the way people get brought from deadness and lack of repentance to repentance and from bondage to Satan to do his will is by this patient, loving, gentle teaching. It's the word that becomes the instrument of wakening the dead. So it's wonderful on Sunday morning if you meet life when you come. And I don't assume I'm going to meet it. I assume there's going to be a lot of death brought into the room. Kind of partial death, dullness in the saints, too much television, too much money, too much worry. And the, the word is just going, eh, 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 as the thorns and, and the, the cares of this world and the delight in other things tend to choke it out. And I'm there to hack away at these thorns and to give life to these dying souls and to waken sleeping and raise dead hearts. And that would be an absolutely hopeless task if the Word of God were not powerful and living, able to pierce to the division of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and search out the secret things of the heart and bring life where there is no Life And so if worship is going to happen, there has to be life and life comes by the word. And so there's another reason for why the word must be woven into our services, not just part of it, but all of it, all of it must be word saturated. So let me sum up what we've seen so far and then shift gears over to the actual phenomenon of preaching in worship. Uh, three reasons to sum them up. One, um, the word is the revelation of God as he inspired the word. The word uh, portrays and performs God's work in the world. And third, the word brings life. You've got to see God. You've got to see his works. You've got to have life or you can't have worship. And the word does all those things and therefore The word is essential and central in worship. Now, here's a harder question. 
why the particular form of word called preaching? You can do a lot of things with with this book. You could read it for 30 minutes. You could do historical analyses of it and explain the words in context. Uh, you could sing it for an hour. Why preach it? Where, where do we get this idea that that should occupy, for me, 35, 40 minutes on a Sunday morning? Where does that come from? So now we keep reading. We're Just ignore the chapter division because it wasn't there when Paul wrote it. He finishes saying, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching and correction, reproof for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Now, don't miss this absolutely unparalleled, solemn introduction. There's nothing like it in the Bible that I know of anywhere else. I don't know of any place where a brief command is introduced like, I solemnly charge you, dia martyre omai, not just martyre omai, dia martyre omai, I solemnly charge you in the presence of Almighty God, and not just God, but of Christ, Messiah, Jesus. So there are two attendants to this charge of mine. I am charging you, Timothy. I am saying something out of my mouth through this letter to you about something very important. And two people are watching me. God the Father and God the Son are watching as I tell you this. Isn't that a strange thing to say? Unless what I'm about to say is to be lifted to unbelievable proportions of importance. And that's not all he says. God the Father is watching. Christ Jesus is watching. I'm in the presence of them as I write these words. This Jesus who is watching is to judge. That brings in a sense of trembling into Timothy and Paul here. I'm going to be judged. You're going to be judged, Paul, for what you say to me now. I'm going to be judged for how I respond to what you say to me and how I handle what you say to me. And my people that I deal in the word with are going to be judged by this Christ. And not only judged, but the living will be judged. The dead will be judged. Everybody, in other words, will be judged. This is a universal person who's attending to this commandment that you're about to give me. And he's going to judge them. If they're dead, they've got to give an account. If they're alive, they've got to give an account. And then, and... By his appearing. It's very strange grammatically here. Just an accusative of reference that just kind of dangles out there. And you wonder, well, how does this function? Because it really depends on the, on the verb charge. It's not judge them by his appearing. That's not the, that's not the grammar in the Greek. Judge the living and the dead. 
his appearing, solemnly charged with reference to his appearing. In other words, keep in mind, this judge is going to stand forth from invisibility and become visible someday. The clouds will split. Lightning will flash from one horizon to the next. The whole world will see. They'll call on rocks to fall upon them. He is going to be visible. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord, either willingly or unwillingly. This is big, what I'm about to tell you here. And he's got one more thing to say. And and by his kingdom, I charge you. I charge you by his appearing. I charge you by his kingdom. When he judges, he will establish a kingdom. And then every account will be settled. Every reward will be given. Every wrong will be righted. And nothing will have been spent for his sake in vain. Here's what all that is about, Timothy. Preach the word. That's an amazing introduction. That's absolutely amazing. So I get the impression this is important. Paul means for Timothy to wake up and hear these simple words. Preach the word with great solemnity. So my first reason for saying that preaching should be central in corporate worship is that it just looks like here it is important to the Apostle Paul for a minister of the word whom he's not addressing as an evangelist. But as one who handles the inspired word for men's instruction and reproof and correction, training in righteousness. This is not an evangelistic context. I think you could defend from the book of Acts very easily that preaching belongs in evangelism. It's done by, preaching is the main means of evangelism all through the book of Acts. Preach, 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 preach. But should it be in worship services? That's what I'm asking. That's the more the setting I think we have here of someone who's ministering to a body of believers the word of God. Verse 2 speaks of reproof, rebuke, exhortation. Patience, instruction. So why is it so fitting? Well, first, because it just seems that he says it is. He says it is. Put it right there in the center of the life of the church and preach in the center of the life of the church. Now, there's Old Testament precedent for this. You wonder where it came from and how we got this. Let me just highlight one or two instances. In Nehemiah 8, 6 to 8, it says, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord. This is the context of worship. They worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places and they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense. So the law gave the sense so that the people understood the reading so that there was not only the reading of the law, but there was also called uh, these men to give the sense. So there you have an illustration in Nehemiah 8, 6 to 8 of the law being read 
People standing in worship, bowing down, saying, Amen, Amen. Some appointed people give the sense of the word. Now that's brought over, that pattern is brought over into the synagogue in the New Testament. You see Jesus in Nazareth right off the bat in Luke 4 coming in. Some of the law is read. He closes the law of the book. He makes some exposition and application. Today this word is fulfilled in your hearing. You see the same thing in the book of Acts in the synagogues. Paul goes into the synagogue in Acts 13, 14. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down after the reading of the law and the prophets. The synagogue officials sent to them saying, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So there's the pattern again. Stand up, read a portion of scripture, and then here's a guest. Rabbi, perhaps, and uh, give us a word of exhortation, brothers. And he stands up and he preaches for the next little while in Acts uh, 13, 14 following, 16 to 31, he preaches. So I think we could develop those two lines of reasoning, and they're not the main ones, but here they are. First, it says explicitly, preach the word in uh, 2 Timothy 4, 2 in the context of the life of the church. And secondly, you have these Old Testament roots and these synagogue parallels that seem to be picked up by the early church. But now I have, I would rest my case for preaching and worship mainly on something deeper than both of these. I find it heartening that Paul did say preach the word in this context But when I contemplate why I do what I do, year in and year out, I need to know that it belongs to the to the essence or the substance of the way God set things up. That what I'm doing coheres with reality in a way that's really significant. So here's what I mean by that. Edwards is is a great help to me here. Jonathan Edwards, my favorite dead teacher outside the Bible. Edwards said this. It has to do with the twofold nature of the way God has sought to be worshipped or glorified in the world. How has God sought to be honored, sought to be glorified, sought to be worshipped? which is what creation is about. I'm going to talk about that tonight. So here's the key quote from Edwards. This this was and remains to me one of the most important paragraphs that I've ever read in my life. Edwards wrote, God glorifies himself toward the creatures also in two ways. One by appearing to their understanding. Two, by communicating himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, 
God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. Now, what that says to me, and I think it's absolutely right, is that worship has two components. In order for there to be authentic worship as God has designed it through his self-revelation, there must be a cognitive, or, or Edwards would say a notional or intellectual apprehension of truth about God. And there must be a heartfelt spiritual savoring of the glory and the beauty of that truth from the heart. If you only have the former, you have what we call intellectualism. If you only have the latter, which you can't have, you only can have substitutes of it, you have emotionalism. And if you bring the two together, a true and right mental apprehension of God as he's revealed himself in scripture and history, mingled with a heart's apprehension of the spiritual beauty and delightfulness and amiableness, to use his word, and satisfactory nature, responding outward in delight, then when those two things come together, you have worship. Now here's my contention. One form of speech is designed by God to do those two things. Preaching. The word is keruso here in verse uh, 2 of chapter 4. Keruxon ton logon. It's not the word teach. It's not didasko. It's not the word say. It's not lego. It's not laleo. It's keruso. It's herald. Herald. It's what a, a town crier did. Comes with news. There's no newspaper. There's no radio. There's no television. No internet. If you get news, you get it through a, a town crier. You gather the people, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The king declares an amnesty for all those who are in debt to him. And if you would swear allegiance to his son and follow him, all your debts may be forgiven and the land you're living on will be yours, free and clear. And you, in fact, may have access to his throne room forever. Now, that's preaching. You, you announce, you, you herald a truth about God, about his ways, about his works. And in the heralding of it comes through something for the mind, a truth that must be there. And there is, it's carried by a man who has felt the wonder of it and aims to display it in such a way that the people feel the wonder of it. Because if they don't, they're not worshiping. 
If they only understand it and don't delight in it, they're not worshiping. Presbyterians need to get a handle on this. Charismatics need a handle on the other end. Baptists are groping everywhere in between. Trying trying to get a hold of this. Preaching, my case is that preaching is designed by God, intended by God, to have these two elements in it. Namely, uh, the element for the mind, it must articulate truth. And, And our people love to hear truth articulated with cogency. They, they, they like to be able to trust their pastor that he has thought about this. The words aren't just tumbling out and they're saying, we're, does he know what words are following words here? Just, they're just tumbling out there and I can't detect any coherency there between how that connected to that connected to that. And if you lose the trust of your people because you become so voluble that words just start tripping off your tongue and don't have logical coherence, you may wow them with some stories or flourishes of rhetoric, but you will not lead them into worship. So there must be coherency. I'm listening right now to tapes by Martin Lloyd-Jones on Romans 7. And uh, I, I... I listen while I brush my teeth and take a shower and getting dressed. I just, I put tapes in everywhere and punch buttons from room to room as I go. And uh, I just marvel at how this man riveted the attention of his people on words and phrases and logical connections. And yet it never seemed to become intellectualistically pedantic. Like you kind of yawn and say, oh, good grief, give me some... Give me something to live by. You just never, you never felt like he had lost himself in the, in the trees of academia. And yet, it hung together. It hung together. You trusted him. He's thought deeply about this. He knows where he's going. He's leading somewhere. He sees how that phrase relates to that phrase and that one and how this is not a contradiction over here in James or back here in Proverbs. He's thought about those. Just when I'm thinking of the problem, he says the problem and gives me a solution for the problem. I starts to win my confidence and then he moves me with his passion over it or his illustration of it. And he's he's won me and my confidence intellectually that he's thought deeply. And now I'll let his heart affect me so that he's not doing an end run to manipulate me around my mind into my heart. That's what we want. I, I call this expository exaltation. E-X-U-L-T-A-T-I-O-N. I think preaching is expository in the sense that I've been developing it here, that there's this deep, cogent, truth, scripture-based component to it. And then what does a preacher do that's different from others who handle that word? He exults over it. He takes it in his mind. 
He, he meditates on it for days. He wrestles it into some kind of deliverable form that has, has some kind of cogency to it. And then he simmers over it and makes it yield glory for him. And then he goes into that pulpit with some well-chosen words or spirit-given words. And he exults over that truth. And those two things together make preaching. It's the exulting over the truth or the truth exulting that make preaching preaching. Which is why, if I were to write a book on worship and preaching, which I hope maybe to do someday, it would be called Preaching as Worship, not Preaching in Worship. Preaching as Worship. I try to teach my people and model for my people that when I'm preaching, I am worshiping. I love the truth that I am preaching. I love the God that I am heralding. And I want to display that and and exult over him to catch you up into it. That's what my goal is when I am preaching. So, let me draw this to a close and then we'll see if there's time for, for some questions. Um, worship is not just understanding and not just feeling. It is both understanding and feeling. It is seeing God and savoring God. It is the response of the mind and the response of the heart. And therefore, preaching belongs in that and is that. Because it is the kind of heralding that God has designed to perform both of those things. Expositing the word and exulting in the God of the word. Teaching the mind, reaching the heart, showing the truth, savoring the glory of the God of the truth. That's what I think preaching is and that's why I think it belongs in worship. So let me pray and uh, ask God to sanctify this word to us. And then I'll let the leaders tell me whether there's time for questions. Father in heaven, I ask now that you take these few thoughts on preaching with the confidence that preaching belongs in worship because it is worship. It's one of those unique God-ordained forms of speech that do the two things that are essential for worship, namely quicken the mind to know and quicken the heart to feel. Work that, I pray, in our hearts now. Work it in our pulpits. Refine our ability to do these things for the good of our people and for the glory of your name, I pray, through Jesus Christ. Amen. We do have a few moments for some questions in order to ensure that they're audible to all of us and also on the recordings that we're making. We ask that you come to this microphone and ask the questions if you have them. So please uh, come out of the pews. Don't be shy. Come up and ask any questions if you have them, and I'll uh, cut them off at the appropriate time. Yeah, you can go any direction you want, anything at all, personal, practical, theological, biblical, or whatever. I'm surprised you'd pass on that invitation. Well, give them a chance here. You've got to get their thoughts together here.
Dr. Piper, I'd like to ask a, a week in the life of a pastor, what should it look like with this in mind? Um, well, it's going to look different for every pastor. And uh, rather than tell you all the pieces that are going to be there for you, because every church is different, every family is different, every chapter in the life of the church is different, every community is different, every pastor is gifted differently. So for me to lay out all the pieces of what it should look like, let's just say um, there should be a steady stream of daily meditation and prayer right across the top of that week. And perhaps right in the middle of the day and right at the end of the day. Daniel prayed three times a day in your with a healthy component of Bible memory in there as well as meditation. And then I think a steady stream of uh, reading and study that's going to go up and down according to the pressures of your life and week. And then somewhere in the week, a real concerted, lengthy time of preparation for the specific engagements with the Word. I teach on Wednesday night, so I take all day Wednesday in preparation. And I set aside Fridays and Saturdays to get ready for Sunday preaching. Now, I only preach once on Sunday. I preach twice, but it's the same message. We don't have a Sunday evening service now. We used to for 10 years or so, but now small groups meet on Sunday night. Um, so I set aside two days for that. Uh, generally don't use the full two days anymore, but they're there to be used if I, if I need them. Uh, so that's uh, for the Wednesday and the Sunday, three full days that are pretty much set aside for study and preparation for those ministries of the Word. Um, of course, there have to be times set aside when you meet with people. I set aside Monday afternoons and some on Tuesday afternoon. If you have a multiple staff, you have to set aside time to do that. You have to save evenings for the family. And uh, I could talk more there about some ways our church have been our staff has been working to figure that out more recently because you, you have to step back every now and then and rethink how you're doing it because you can realize you're uh, killing your staff if you're not careful or killing yourself if you don't have a staff. Um, and then there need to be times when you're, you're just out among the people. For me, that tends to be after the services. I I pray with people after our services, and so I stop preaching around, oh, 12, 10, 12, 15, and I'm generally there until 1 o'clock praying with people right in the front of the church. And they talk to me about anything they want, pray about anything they want, share with anything they want, uh, besides those Monday and Tuesday afternoon times. Um, that's probably enough. I mean, there are lots of other components to your life that you need, but if you're, if you're, if you're thinking about how to keep your heart alive in God so that you can exalt and how to keep your head growing in this 
infinite, glorious repository of truth called Scripture, then there need to be uh, the meditation. And, and I really in my own life do distinguish between a more affective, meditative Bible reading called devotions and a more rigorous study where you're tackling hard problems in the Bible that you can't figure out, like how imputation works or something like that, and you're reading theology and you're struggling with comparing texts in Romans 7 and Galatians 3, and and uh, that's a little different to me, though it can yield wonderful devotional experiences. Uh, I try to treat the Bible both as a love letter and as a book to be studied because otherwise... Uh, my own heart is wired to drift away from affection into intellectualistic fascination with propositions. Other other people may go the other direction and need more discipline that way, but uh, that's the way I'm wired. I can I pe- I can become aesthetically fascinated with logical connections, which look like serious Bible study and yield very little of spiritual food for my people or my own soul. So this this meditative stream that needs to be there is a you could call it the pietistic bent in me. I I think it's uh it's got far deeper roots than anything like that. I think it's rooted right in the very nature of God. He means to be worshipped by being enjoyed. And we do not enjoy his spiritual attributes unless we meditate on them and roll them around on the tongue of our soul until they yield their sweets. Thank you for the message, Dr. Piper. Uh, I'd like to go back to the worship with the mind and the uh, heart. And how can we as pastors and leaders of people I'd like to address you address further the affective, you know, the cognitive. Right now, most of our people, they've been in church for a long time. They know the structures. They know the word. How can we best affect the affective, the heart? How can we address that further in our preaching and in our teaching uh, to help them see the parameters of the effect of the heart? And, of course, Psalms, David, and so forth as the heart tattered. That's where I'm going. And we can speak further to the affective. Oh, that's so, so crucial to ask that question. As a heart pants for the spring, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My heart longs for thee as a living God. Um, One thing would be to start where they are. And if, if they're the kind of people who are chronically unemotional, um, then you might start by teaching them texts that talk about the affective and and ask them what their experience is like that. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Ask them what do you what's your experience of tasting and seeing? What is how does the word see and taste work together in your mind? And get their if they're intellectual people, get them to think about that. And if they find themselves wanting, they might become hungry and start to look. 
I had a man say to me one time when I came to Bethlehem and began to sound the note of, of Christian hedonism, of delighting in God and saying that faith has an affective element that is essential to it. He came up to me quite distraught after a service one time. He said, I, frankly, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. I don't function that way at all. I, I think, I know, I make decisions, I make commitments. This other dimension, this affective feeling dimension that you're talking about is just not part of my life. And I, I said to him, I don't believe you. That was my response. I don't believe you. And I asked him, I said, surely there is some place in your life, in your relationships, in your walk among nature, where you have had experiences that go beyond thinking right thoughts about reality and he stopped I said give, give me an example I'm sure you can come up with an example and he he thought for a minute and he said well maybe maybe when I'm in the boundary waters on a starlit night with my son lying out on the ground and it's a sheet of stars maybe there I feel something more than just thinking about those stars. I said, okay. And what I want you to do now is to, is to transpose that music into a spiritual key. If you can think of this analogy that in nature there's this experience where on a starry night out in the woods, away from all sounds of technology, you're there with your son, you're lying on the ground, looking straight up into heaven, it's a sheet of white, and you are drawn out, and your soul is expansive and feels a sense of wonder and awe and trembling and, and glory at nature, transpose that, into a spiritual key. Say, God who made that must be, therefore, more glorious than that. That's the work of his fingers, Psalm 8 says. Just his fingers, not his, his biceps. Just his fingers. And therefore, if he were to apply his biceps, what you get is galaxies upon galaxies beyond and this God must be stunningly glorious, breathtakingly glorious. And take the emotion that you know is there and transpose it up a key into the spiritual and apply that to God. That's one way that I would try to help him make the transition. And then a second thought is, you know, most of us are crippled emotionally. Some very crippled and some only partially crippled, but everybody's crippled a little bit. Some people are crippled because they have way too much emotion. They just cry at the drop of the hat. And other people are crippled because they can't cry no matter what happens to them. And they can't show any emotion because the way their dad treated them or the way their mom treated them. And they never got a hug. And they never were affirmed. And they never got anything 
encouraging or emotional said to them that they're, they have no categories for for dealing in relationships at the emotive level. Those people need profound healing and patience, patience, because God can over time do that. I have watched guys now. I'll use the illustration of lifting hands in worship. I put no stock in outward gestures whatsoever in and of themselves. But as releases of the whole person to God to uh, be able to lift one's hand in worship without imitating anybody or fearing anybody. To move from where some of our guys were 20 years ago to where they are today required profound healing, healing in overcoming fears and in overcoming a kind of macho sense that to express affection. I mean, a lot of the worship songs today that many people of of my reform stripe cluck their tongue at are clucked at. Not because they're bad words, in fact, they're just Bible often, or because they're bad tunes, but because they're so blame affectionate. They're just so intimate that these guys feel like they're naked when they're talking like that. And they don't like feeling naked. And so I think uh, teaching our people uh, about those lyrics and why they're there and then uh, modeling in in front of the people. I, I sit on the front pew down there. I used to be up in front when I led worship, but the way we do it now, I sit in the pew. And so I'm a worshiper in the congregation during the singing time of our worship. And I... Just try to enjoy God. That's my goal. I just want to enjoy God. And so modeling for your people the enjoyment of God. So those are two or three ideas.